0: all right some things about the church in corinth and what's going on here all right so the the corinthian church is a church of converted gentiles uh and this is an this is an important little uh thing to remember and we've talked about this a little bit but i want to really anchor this in this is a group of people who were pagan Right, uh, an entire belief system that was opposed to God. Okay, handed down from generations upon generations of unbelievers, many of whom had been at war with God. Okay, and and then here comes the gospel. It makes sense to these people. They get saved, right? Okay, but they still live in a land that is under Roman law. And something to know is that there is no uniform marriage law under the Roman Empire, okay? Uh, they don't have this like, this like basic understanding of what marriage looks like. Uh, in fact, uh, each social group kind of experiences marriage differently in this society. The slaves, for them, marriage was not even recognized, okay? A, a master could allow two slaves to basically cohabitate... Okay, but at any point that they wanted to, they could say, "All right, I don't, I don't want you to be together anymore," or, or even worse, because they were slaves, the master could sell off one of them, and 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 we would look at this and say, you know, it's unacceptable. Uh, we would revolt. We would we would go to war over this. But this was so normal in their society that there was not a a a a. a sense of understanding why this wasn't okay. Roman culture said, this is just how you do it, okay? Now, among the common people, uh, uh, they had this, this law called usus, and it, in essence, it was a lot like what we would consider to be common law marriage in, in the United States, except for that it took place after one year. So, if a man and woman lived together for a year, they were considered to be married. In the United States, it's seven years. And, and then there was another popular form of marriage, and that was where somebody had a little bit of money, and they saw a man who was down on his luck, and they would basically go and purchase that man's daughter, right? We use this kind of language today of a, of a dowry, and we still see this being used in, in countries around the world, right? Uh, but we would say that this is not something that, that we would hold to in Christendom as being an acceptable way of stepping into marriage. And then you had the elites, and I accidentally deleted the slide on this. The elites, though, those people who were high society, they had wedding ceremonies in which the brides wore veils, they ate cake, they exchanged rings. Uh, A lot of the Roman uh, practices we see handed down and the Christian church adopted into our ceremonies, and that's that influence that comes. And so, you literally had these three different groups of people within society that were stepping into marriage in three different ways, okay? And, and divorce was the norm, okay? Uh, the changing of partners was common in a Roman society. So, when Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and, and I, I just want to remind you, like, if we go back to the, the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, right, they get out of Egypt in the Old Testament, right, and what do they do? God says, do not worship any other gods, do not make idols to other gods, okay, and don't make an idol to worship me. Why? Because they were raised in a society their entire lives where that is what you do right? There's a God of the dirt and there's a God of the sun. There is a God of everything and you've just got to figure out who that God is and pray to them and make idols to them. And so God's addressing not just a proclivity within humanity, but specifically something that was an an, an indoctrination within their society. And this is the same thing here the church at corinth is in a very pagan society this goes far beyond corinth though to the roman empire and their views on marriage now why is it applicable today because they, a lot of these same practices right are, are the ideas are being normalized in our society okay now it was not uncommon to have a wife for the house and concubines for other needs okay So Roman society, if you had the money to afford it and you were a male, what you would do, you would have a wife that was there to oversee the house. This did not necessarily mean that she was in charge of cleaning the house. You may have servants and slaves that did it, but she oversaw all of that. And then the man would have uh, mistresses, concubines on the side who were also considered to be their wives, but they would not live in the proper home. And adultery and fornication were normal. Monogamy was rare. It was not, people did not get married and remain faithful to each other, okay? So you don't just have this idea of like all of a sudden there's this new way of doing marriage where people are being unfaithful. No, no, no. That is exactly how They were living lives. And I'll just remind you, if you go back to Genesis 6, right, it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took into them their own, and they bore children. I'm not going to get down into the Nephilim here with you, but the idea being that there was not a sense of monogamy and faithfulness inside of marriage. In Genesis 6, and God looked at the earth, and he says he regretted that he had made man. So this is the norm for the world, is to just jump around and have sexual partners and not be faithful and not be committed and always pushing the bounds of what God, our Creator, expects for marriage. And the church in Corinth is a group of pagans that get saved, and they're still kind of wrestling with this, right? And if we back up to chapter 5, he says that you have a man in your church who now is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're all like, woohoo! Why? Because, because look how accepting we are, right? This person, at least they're in church. And then we get here into chapter 7, and, and Paul's got to bring out some understanding or, or, or bring some, some, some clarity onto what marriage is to look like, okay? Now, women were not exempt from this adulterous lifestyle at the time. I, I want to point out a few things for you. Uh, A book called uh, Daily Life in Rome by Jerome Carcopino. I don't know how you pronounce that. Um, He was speaking on Rome's women's liberation movement that was taking place during this time. He said that some women were not content to live their lives by their husband's side, but carried on another life without him. And so what you had is you had women who were wealthy because of their parents' estate. And then they would marry based on class standards, but they would not be happy with their husband. And so what they did was they ran around and found other men to meet their desires. Uh, uh, A man named Juvenal wrote this. He said, thus does she lord it over her husband, but before long she vacates her kingdom. She uh, flits from one home to another, wearing out her bridal veil Thus does the tale of her husbands husbands grow. There will be eight of them in the course of five autumns, a fact worthy of commemoration on her tomb. And, and this is a, a fictional piece where he is trying to encourage young men not to get married because in his writing he says that, that you're just going to get married just to get hurt because women in this society are not going to be faithful to you, right? So, so... You have a society that is in a sexual revolution, right? This just feels so fitting to the narrative of the society that we live in today, right? And let me tell you what Paul is dealing with. Some of the Corinthians were willing to compromise to get these people in the church, but others were making new rules so as to protect their children from this immorality. And this is what the church just historically does. We just, we just swing the pendulum as far as we can in one direction, and as soon as we realize that we're guilty of creating incredible chaos, we just swing it the opposite direction, Right? And we don't teach moderation, and we don't teach thinking, right? I mean, and, and, and so what, we don't look so different from the world around us, right? I, I, I constantly kind of say this, this thing that the world is trying to tell our kids what to think, not how to think. And the church can't be guilty of that. We're not trying to tell our kids what to think. We're trying to teach them how to think. And you learn how to think by understanding the word of God. If you're going to think as a believer, then you need to understand the heart of God. So let's look at this text with some of this understanding here. Verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I want to point something out here because just this text in itself is one that has created a little bit of controversy. Uh, we teach through the ESV. I take every opportunity I can to point this out to you. This is a, a translation that basically every two years, scholars reevaluate. Is there new text available that we can look at? How accurate and faithfully are we translating it? And you'll notice here that they put this phrase in quotations, okay? Okay. All right? And if you were to go to the King James Version, you would note here that it is not in quotations. Now, this does not, and I I bring clarity every time in case we have guests, I am not saying that the King James Version is a bad version, but that that one difference there with the quotations, right? You would say, man, that doesn't really change anything. It does change some context, okay? Because it requires this verse to be taught one of two ways. If you don't have the quotations then you're forced to teach that celibacy is good it's the only way and verse 2 i mean the second way if you have those quotations in place then it is that we are addressing what the church in corinth is saying not what god is saying and that is what paul has been doing a lot of this is why most scholars now agree and why the quotations are there is paul is addressing the things that they say from the platform Right? The things that they're teaching in society. And so, if we look at it from that perspective, right, Paul is not saying that it is not good for a man to be with a woman, okay? He is saying that you have swung this pendulum in a direction that some of you now are going like it'd be better. Not that it would be better, because Paul's going to bring some clarity to this, but the only way is for you to be abstinent your entire life, never to be intimate. And Paul is going to bring some correction and say that's not the case because he says here in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, because just because you make that declaration like, oh yeah, well, I'm definitely not having sex with that person does not mean that the temptation to have sex with that person is gone, right? Um, uh, when I was younger, we went through this whole, like, abstinence program. This is something the churches were doing, right? It was a purity first thing, and so it was all these classes, and then we had a purity ceremony, and, um, uh, interestingly enough, like, everybody got, like, purity rings or, like, a purity necklace. My, my dad had not been very involved in the whole thing. Good man, loves the Lord, but had been working, and uh, he was supposed to show up to, to be there for that and didn't really know what was going on, so he gave me a purity bottle of cologne, all right? <laughs> so everybody else is getting, you know, like, you know, rings and necklaces, and then my dad comes out with a bottle of, like, old-school green bottle polo, you know what I'm saying, and hands it to me, right, but, but I just, I want to be real with you for a moment that we make those promises, right, and we, and we go, I'm going to do this, I'm going to love the Lord, I'm going to serve God, but if, if you've lived any life, you know temptation isn't gone, right, it's not like the enemy goes, oh man, they made a promise, man, golly, I got to go somewhere else now, that's not what happens, right, if anything, it can create even more temptation because in, now you're wrestling in your mind. But I told God I wouldn't do this. But man, I really want to do this, right? And so the temptation isn't gone. So he says that because the temptation to sexual, because of this temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Like this should be the proper teaching. This should be the foundation of the teaching, that we, we encourage our sons that one day, hey, by the grace of God, you're going to find a beautiful woman. She's going to be an incredible wife, and you're going to serve her and love her, and man, by the grace of God, one day you're going to be a dad. And to our daughters, we say, by the grace of God, one day you're going to find a man that's going to love you, protect you, provide for you. He's going to do everything to champion you, And he's going to be faithful to you. And by the grace of God, one day you'll get to be a mom. These are the the things that we want to instill in our kids, right? Now, what we also want is we want God to be at work inside of them. And so Paul's going to continue this, but Paul is addressing their view. I really believe this, and I think that this is the case because it is a consistency within this letter to the church in Corinth. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul is specific that this is a better solution when we are presenting the, 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 the goal of how we interact with intimacy, this is the better solution to bring to our kids than don't ever even look at them, right? Because that creates an entirely different set of issues. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. All right, I know that we don't have kids' church right now because of volunteer shortages. So I'm not going to define conjugal rights for you. I'm going to let you go home and maybe call your mom and dad tonight and ask them if you don't know. But I do want to look at a little bit here in the Greek that's very interesting. This, this, the language that's there is let fulfill your duty. Let fulfill the duty. And so, Paul is saying that when you get married, right, that there is not just this, like, hope for hand-holding, okay, but there is an expectation for it. And I I get it. Like, this is another problem with society, right, because the the normalization of the world is that there… It's wrong to have any expectations, right? And and the problem is, is that there are people who turn those expectations into force. There is no doubt. Like when we talk about forcing yourself on somebody, that's always wrong. It's always a sin, right? But when we're talking about inside of marriage, we're talking about one flesh, we cannot be so naive as to think that there just aren't times where each member of that one flesh right, is beginning to have some need inside of them, right? And, and and I'll tell you, I'll just confess myself, like the outside influence of the world sometimes can make it really difficult for me to even feel like I can express that in my marriage, and, and, and historically that has happened. And let me tell you, when I can't express that because I feel like, oh man, somebody out there is going to know that I expressed my need for intimacy and they're going to dog me out like they ever would but that's what goes on in your mind is like you're going to be on the next night's news as the terrible human being that you are um, but the reality is is that when you don't it leads into all other types of temptation and if you want to be free of temptation you want to be you want to find freedom and lust and desire and emotional dependence like finding a way to communicate your needs when it comes to intimacy, it's, it's going it's to save your marriage. It's going to make your marriage outstanding. I really don't know how to communicate that any clearer. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Uh, it's so funny because you read that, and you forget what the next part of the verse is, and you think to yourself, I've got to preach that. <sighs> Thank you, Paul, for finishing the thought. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does what Paul is saying here, God-given natural desires. God's fully aware that He made you a certain way and that you're going to have certain desires. I was talking with somebody yesterday. uh, uh, Actually, it was with John, and, and we were just talking about how many people will say Uh, you know, oh, I'm good. It's just me and God. I got my relationship. It's great, right? And yet, you go back to Genesis, and God's like, yeah, you and me is not enough, right? But how many people go, yeah, I'm good. It's just me and God, and God's going, "Eh, no, there's got to be some community here, right? There's got to be some community here. Why? Because God made Adam, and God said, there are some things that Adam is going to need fulfilled, and so he makes Eve, and he makes her in that same likeness, in that same image. So there are certain things that she is going to need fulfilled. And God says, it's good for you guys to be together. It's good for you guys to be together. So so, so these are God-given natural desires that Paul is addressing. And this is the practicality of what it looks like to talk about one flesh, right? We... we Paul talked about it last week, but we use this language in the church all the time, right? That a husband and a wife are one flesh. One flesh. That means that we're, you know, so this is not about just me having a desire or my wife having desire. This is about our marriage having desires. This is about our marriage needing to have certain, certain aspects of fulfillment. And so if I'm sitting here and, and, and my wife has a different view than me, then you know what I've got to do is I've got to work on that and figure out how to make that right. You know, you get a, you get a pain in your knee, right? You don't just sit there and take a hammer and beat your knee and say, man, you're going to get in line. That's not how it works, right? Right? We go through therapy. We might end up needing a little bit of surgery. We're going to do what it takes to get our knee back to where we're functioning properly. And, I, and the world's view is, well, if he is saying this or if she is acting like that, then you need to tell them to get lost. But the idea of one flesh is long before unfaithfulness and all these things happen, we need to be doing the work to make sure that we're in a good place. Now, verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I got to tell you, doing marriage counseling as a pastor and... And We've done a lot of it, and, and we've, we've done it from just, like, little bitty things, like, hey, there's this little disagreement. We need somebody to talk to, to, like, people who are not even living in the, same, in the same house, right? Okay, they're just completely, they feel like they're done with each other, but they're willing to have a conversation. The first question that I ask that I do not ever want to ask, can I just tell you, like, I am the most uncomfortable with this stuff, but one of the first questions that I ask is, are you being intimate? Not because I want to know whether they're being intimate, because I promise you, I don't want to know. But almost, 90% of the time, when there is marriage trouble, the answer to that question is no. There is no intimacy. And what I find out in the counseling is that he thinks she's not interested and she thinks that he's not interested and they don't know how to acknowledge to one another that they're both very interested. And Paul's addressing this. He says, look, like, like inside of your marriages, you need to be together. That needs to be the norm. Now, there will be exceptions. We're going to get to that in a moment. But the norm, so if you're in here right now, you're like, well, my marriage is really good and, and we're not intimate. That's a gift from God. Paul says so in a moment. There's, that's a, there are giftings that God will give inside of a marriage that allow for that to happen, but not everyone has that gift. And the majority Paul is addressing here says there needs to be a conversation that is constantly happening around intimacy. Otherwise, Satan, right, and we know that's not, that's not, a name for an, a specific demon, right? That is the deceiver, right? That there will be a deception that will be brought into the hearts of those who are there, and ultimately it can create division. Verse six. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this: I wish that all were as myself as, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. One. Of one kind and one of another. So Paul says, as a concession, I understand that there will be some, right? Okay, that have a unique gift from God. It's different than everybody else. I have that gift, he says. Not everybody's going to have it. So if you're sitting here and he says, as a concession, if you're reading this and you're like, oh no, I absolutely blah, 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 blah. Okay, I get it. Some have a gift from God that allows them to operate differently. It's not the norm, but it does exist, right? Now, the question that gets brought up for me here is, when you're looking at what different scholars are saying and and, and, and you're listening to other pastors, they jump in right here and they begin to say, well, okay, Paul is single at this point, but Paul wasn't always single. And the argument that they make is that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, and that in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, the argument is that you had to be married, okay? So the, the, the problem with this argument, and I'll just be honest with you because there are some pastors that I respect that, that teach this, but for me, the problem with this argument is that the Sanhedrin was nothing more than a, than a political government at the time of, of Christ, it was not a, a, a leading anybody in a sense of real faithfulness. In fact, on the day that they brought Jesus forward in accusation, they broke 22 of their own laws, okay? They did not have a respect for the laws that were on the book, right? It was always, and this is, this is I'm just going to be transparent with you, and this irritates some people, but, but here's my opinion, right? Like, I have emotions. My emotions deceive me a lot of times, right? There are a lot of times where I think something is going on, right? Where somebody's not responding to my text message, and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're mad at me. They hate me. What's going on, right? Those are my emotions and my thoughts. And then 99% of the time, it turns out that, you know, they were doing something. I don't know, you know? And they're like, what are you talking about? No, I was just busy. Everything's good right? And I can almost embarrass myself that way, okay? So I have learned at 42 years of age that letting emotions decide what I do and don't do more often than not leads to catastrophe. And so when it comes to law, my argument is that if we think there's a law on the books that should be changed, we don't just ignore it and do what we want to do. Instead, we legislate for the law to be changed, But that's not humanity's proclivity, okay? Our proclivity is in the moment, mob rule, we do what we want, and the Sanhedrin had become very guilty of this. They were not removed. And so the day that they bring Jesus to Pilate, the day that they want to see him killed, they break 22 of their own laws, 12 of them, 12 of them that were reasons for being expelled from the Sanhedrin. So the fact that you have this political body and some writings talk about that to be a member of the Sanhedrin you had to be married i don't think that it makes a really clear argument that paul had to have been married because they at this point did what they wanted to do i mean let's be honest paul is out there killing christians with no trial Sanhedrin says you can't even do that right he had to bring them to a trial they had to be given an opportunity to present their case and then there had to be a vote and they're just out in the wild, like, hunting Christians down like it's, you know, uh, deer season. You know what I'm saying? And they've got rocks to go chasing after them. I know some of you are excited about deer season. Some of you are not. Right? Okay? So, so, so there's not this sense of, like, wow, man, this is, like, they're doing it right so we can make this argument. Okay? So was Paul single? At this point in time, very clearly, because verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So he is single at this point. Was he ever married? No clue. I have no idea. There's no indication that he was, and we can use external logic. But if we use external logic, then I'm going to continue to use external logic and say that I would think that if he were talking about widows here, he probably would have said a widow like I am. Right? But he says, and widows who are single like I am. Again, I don't know whether he was married or not, but this is what he says. He says that I'm single and it is a gift from God that I'm able to do it. And why was it a gift from God? The reason he uses this language is because when you are single and you are not married, you have a unique opportunity to spend more time with your Creator. Because you have less daily responsibility. You think to yourself, what does that look like? Well, let me tell you something. I wake up, my wife and I wake up in the morning, and we let dogs out. We make sure kids are up. We make sure litter boxes are changed, right? I know you would like to think that we wake up at 3 in the morning and spend two hours before the Lord on our prayer rugs before we do anything. But let me tell you, if I were to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and get on a prayer rug, my dogs would know I was awake. I can't even get to the bathroom in the middle of the night without them scratching at doors because they hear, like, it's time to play, right? So when I wake up in the morning, I have a slew. There's no laying on the couch, Michael, and watching Friends. (laughs) Yeah, it would have been the office for us, but, you know, different generation. My point being, like, there's just this, 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 there's so much to do. You wake up, and am I wrong? You're at 100 miles an hour and, and it's like, and, and that leads to you laying in bed thinking, if I don't get up, it's not 100 miles an hour. So where, when I was younger, I was like, man, I'll get out of bed, I'll do whatever. Now it's like, if I don't move, if I don't move. I don't know if you ever feel that way, but I feel that way. I'm going to tell you, I'll look over and I'll hear my phone ding, and I'll think to myself, if I don't move, the dog won't know I'm awake. Because as soon as the dog knows I'm awake... There's just no stopping it, right? And then the whole house is in chaos. But I love it. Let me just tell you, I love it. I love it. But it is a gift, just like it is a gift sometimes to say, hey, I'm going to get away and I'm going to spend some time with the Lord. But when you're single, you have more access to that. Now, being single is a gift from God. He makes this very clear, okay? But it is not a gift for every single person. The majority of people are going to need to be in a a marriage and they are going to need to practice what it looks like to be one flesh and they're going to have to experience intimacy and they're going to have to do the hard work of being but it's what's going to fulfill them and let me tell you it is those people and the single people serving the lord that become the light in the darkness the testimony of the gospel to the world outside they go whoa people who are single love the lord like this and people who are married love the lord like this And when we look like the world, they look from the outside and go, what in the world would I want Jesus? On top of all the chaos, I've got to get up on Sundays and go to church? No, thank you. That's my day to go fishing. Right? Like, what do I gain from it? He goes on here in verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. He's making this very clear for them. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So being single is not an expectation from God. It's not an expectation it is a gift if you are able to do it. Verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Now, a lot of people will use these next few verses as a place to argue that the Bible is not authoritative and that the Bible is not the word of God. When we look at this in context, it's very clear that that is not what Paul is talking about. The argument that Paul is making here is he, when he says, not I, but the Lord, he is saying, He is quoting Mark chapter 10. So he's saying, what I'm presenting to you now came directly from Jesus' lips. And in a moment, he's going to say, and what I'm presenting now, Jesus didn't say, but the Holy Spirit is saying. It doesn't make it any less authoritative. But he says, the wife should not separate from her husband. So Jesus addresses divorce in Mark chapter 10. I'm not going to go there because of time. He goes here in verse 11, but if she does she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, right? So if there's a divorce, right, and the Scripture lays these things out, if there's a divorce and one of the spouses remarries and then divorces, you're not to re-reconcile, okay? Okay? It's tough counsel sometimes when, when, when we're navigating these things with people. But if there's a divorce and both are separate and then they decide to reconcile, God's in that. God's in that. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So, this just makes me think, right, like, when we start talking about these things, when we start talking about chapters 5, 6, and 7 here, when we're talking about intimacy and we're talking about divorce, right, this falls in, we begin to see Christians fall into this same camp as people who say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, right? This is correct, this is true, but Christians go to church, See, I don't have to go to church to be saved, but when I'm saved, I understand that God wants me to be in community, and He ordained and created the church for that community. So by being a Christian, right, I am going to be faithful to the desires of the one that saved me. It's not a condition of my salvation, it's just a part of who I am. It's a part of that rewiring. And and I get this a lot from people, especially people who get upset in the church, right? They go, yeah, you know, right now so-and-so said this thing to me, and I just, you know, I don't have to go to church to be saved, right? And they they use this language like, right, well, I, I mean, I'm reading my Bible, right? Well, if you read your Bible, then you know what God says, and you know that God's expectations are on your life to live a certain way. And this is the difficult thing when we're talking about sexual immorality and we're talking about marriage is because people go, I don't really agree with all that stuff, right? And I don't, I, don't, I, don't have to go, I don't have to do it that way to be saved. No, but if you're saved, you're gonna do it the way that God wants you to do it, right? Why? Because it's the best way. Because it has proven itself to be the way that brings the most redemption. It brings the greatest covering, the greatest protection in your life. Verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, and this is where he says this, like, he says this is not directly from Jesus' lips, right? This is the Holy Spirit through me right now, that if a, any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So Jesus didn't address this specific topic, but the Holy Spirit is doing it now, Right? The Holy Spirit is addressing this right now, that if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And so they're bringing up this conversation around the fact that, hey, you've gotten saved and your spouse is really not a believer. What are you to do? Well, if they're willing to stay in the home, you should stay with them. This is is what God's. This is is what Paul is urging here through the Holy Spirit. God's saying that the right thing to do is to remain with them. Watch this. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So what Paul is saying here is not that this saves the person, this is another really bad teaching that the church has done, is they say, well, you know, you're a believer, so your spouse is automatically a believer. That's not what it's saying. It's not about salvation, but it's about favor and the blessing of God on your home, right? By walking this out, you make yourself available, right, to see an increase of favor in your home and directly the impact is directly on your children. The impact is on your children. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, so the person who's not living for God says, I'm done, I'm out of here, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace, right? And this is good for us, because a lot of times all we do is go to Mark 10 for the divorce thing, and then we don't look at the scriptures in their entirety and we just go well this is all there is and we've got to figure it out and the scripture does a lot actually has a lot from the old testament to the new testament to talk about divorce and right here if you have a a a spouse that is like i don't i'm not going to serve god i'm not living for god he says look if that person leaves then you are at peace right because god understands free will And it's not just your free will, but it's their free will. In fact, he goes on here, he says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? What's this language? You're you're not the one that's going to save them. You're not the person that's going to do it. So you can and should pray that your spouse comes to know the Lord, but it is their decision. And at the point that you are in this marriage where you're like, I'm demanding that they get saved, and you're putting that undue pressure on them, and you're telling them they're not living enough like Jesus, you're probably creating a barrier, much more so than you are if you're praying, fasting. And, and here's the most important thing. We talk, about, we talk about how important, you know, love is, right? And people say, well, the, the most important thing is to love like Christ. Well, let me tell you how the love like Christ actually looks like. Love like Christ is sitting in the garden of Gethsemane saying, "Father, if it can be taken from me, let it be. But if not, let it be so." And carrying the cross to Golgotha and being crucified. Right? That's the love of Christ. It is about being uncomfortable and in, and modeling that, right? Right? I mean, how easy would it have been for Jesus to go, "You're going to kill me anyway. You think I'm going to carry my own cross?" Throw that thing off and say, make me. Because I get it. Like, like if I knew I was gonna die anyway, like my, my my response would be like, why would I carry my own cross to this place? But Jesus was modeling every step of the way what love looked like. And this is why we strive to encourage people to marry believers. And I'm telling you, people all the time say, I've got it figured out, it's okay it's going to be good I love this person, we're going to figure it out but here's the thing when you marry an unbeliever you take on the burden of having to navigate these things now down the road because as a believer you have now stepped into a position where you have all these expectations right because you love the Lord, you've got to love the Lord well And then sometimes, somebody, two people get married, and they both are in church, and they claim to love the Lord, and then they get married, and something happens, and all of a sudden, one of the spouses is like, I don't care about God. And then all of a sudden, it's like, what's going on? And I'm not saying that these are easy things, but here's what I'm saying, is don't set the direction that you take based on how you're feeling but based on what the Word of God says. And I promise you, you will reap the best reward from that. You will reap the best reward walking the path that God has laid out, not the path of least resistance. So if you marry someone who's not a believer, then part of your Christian walk is now to walk that out. Now, I will say this, and I, I want to be very clear and the Scripture is is clear there's not always caveats that continue down right i mean these books would just be forever long listen walking out inside of a marriage like this can be really difficult the expectation though is not to be beaten abused physically emotionally right these are not he's not talking about like staying in a marriage with an unbeliever who every day when you walk in they're punching you in the face throwing stuff at you stealing from you you know, taking advantage of you. Those are those are not the conditions here. He's talking about being in a marriage where the person is willing to be faithful, willing to be in the home, but just does not serve God, okay? So, so and I, I really want to make this very clear to, to ladies, sometimes to men, but to ladies, there is no expectation inside of your faith that your husband has a right to lay hands on you, okay? That's just not allowed, and There are other men in the community that can lay hands on him. Praying for him, people. Where are your minds? Come on. So when the world freaks out at this idea, it's okay. It is after all the world. When we talk about like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay in this marriage, I'm going to walk this thing out, and then the world outside's like, what's wrong with you? You're crazy, this is misogyny, and, and patriarchy, and this is everything that's wrong with the world, like, like, why would you expect the world to act any different when you're being obedient to God, right? And that's a hard, like, I, I, listen, that's hard, it is difficult, I get it, right? I get it. There are a lot of things that I get up and preach. And then from a worldly perspective, I have people who reach out to me and they attack me. And, and I'm looking at it going, hey, well, just bring me some, 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 some scripture. Help me see where I'm misinterpreting this. Don't, don't quote a politician at me. You know what I'm saying? Like that's not the thing that's going to fix what we're talking about. We are going to look different than the world. And that's why the lost get saved. We do things differently. We live differently. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all churches. And so there's a tone shift here, okay? And this is what Paul says. Paul says, like, like, as believers, in the midst of everything else that we've talked about, right, he says that you are to lead the life, right? Right? That God has called you to. And these, these two words here, lead, it means to live, to follow. So, so you are to step in and do this thing to which God has called you. But here's what's crazy. This word called, that we are called to, is also used to mean to, to, be, uh, to bestow, to assign, to impart. God has given this thing. He has put it inside of his believers. And we are to walk it out. And this is why when people say, I'm good, I read the Bible, then I go, oh, well, then you know, if you read the Bible, that we are to be light in the darkness. That we are to model our lives differently and not do this, this, and this. And, and the blank stares that I'll get sometimes with people with this, like, what? What? What are you talking about and i think to myself are you only reading psalm one over and over and over and that's all you ever read right i mean when you say you read your bible do you just read a feel-good psalm of the day and if one's heavy you skip it because there's some really heavy or one's really long you skip it are you just in proverbs and you're only reading the verses that you like because if you're good and you read the bible and yeah i'm a christian then, then being in the Word, you're going to go, okay, well, this is what God has said. And let me tell you something. God's Word has proven itself to be the best path forward. And so you would know what's expected from God. Verse 18, was anyone at the time of this call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at, this, at the time of, this, of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. This is this is relevant to us only in that how, how we look, right? Okay, at this time, circumcision was a big argument because you had Jews that had gotten saved that were like, you've still got to go get circumcised. And this was a big debate uh, among the believers of the day. Paul's making the argument, like it doesn't really matter whether you were circumcised or not, right? He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything Nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Keeping means to be imprisoned. Keeping the commandments of God, to be, it's used as a prison, right? And we would go, oh, that's a negative, right? But the the idea here is that there isn't a way out of it. When we are believers, we have stepped into this new lifestyle. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And so, here he's talking about this physical approach, right? Your body, right? So, if you're tatted up, if you've, you know, got, you know, face tattoos, neck tattoos, if you've, I don't know, whatever you've done, right? You've got purple hair and green hair and you you know whatever it is that you've done to yourself physically, right? You don't have to do any of those things to be saved, and you don't have to try to somehow fix it to be saved. God meets you where you're at, regardless of your past physical decisions. And this is not just your body, but this is also for your life. Were you your position, what you do? Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity what does he say he says walk out the faith where you are so if you are married to an unbeliever walk out the faith where you are if you're able to if you have a job right that pays the bills and meets your responsibilities and you hate it if you can find another job find another job but if you can't walk it out like a believer would walk it out And, I, I, you know, we, we just run, right? We, we run and hide in difficult seasons. This is our nature. And Paul's saying, like, when you're saved, don't go and be like, well, they're just, they're talking about really difficult things at church, so I'm not going to be at church. Or, you know, I don't want anybody to know at work that I'm a Christian because then, that, you know, that, that makes corporate really upset, right? Okay, listen, listen, be grounded in the faith and trust God. If you're saved, trust God. And you don't have to stay in the crummy job, right? You don't have to be a bondservant. You don't have to go do that thing. In fact, if you can figure out a way to be happy doing what you want to do, you should do it, but you should still do it to the glory of God. Verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Do not let your job determine your destiny, your legacy, your future. Do not let all of the past decisions, right, and circumstances that you created, right, determine where you end up. Serve him. Love him. And if you have your whole life, right, if you have your whole life said, I'm a Christian, I do things this way, and then all of a sudden you're in the Word one day and you find that God's teaching says that, hey, you've been doing it the wrong way, right? The idea is not to go, oh my gosh, I was never saved, I'm a failure. No, God just brought some clarity to you. And it is perfectly fine for you to shift course a little bit. For you to go, you know, I always thought this, but I didn't know God had addressed it. I need, to, I need to make this change. I need to do this a little bit differently. That's part of what it looks like to mature in the faith. And he ends this thought here in verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And he's trying to encourage them. He says, look, look. if you're inside of these marriages, you need to be faithful to each other. You're, you do not need to be trying to hit the escape button. Right? Learn how to walk with God where you are. Learn how to serve Him first and foremost, right where you're at. And I don't know how to help you believe this, but as you do this, it gets better. It gets better. I, I remember, I'm, I, and I'll end with this one thought I, 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 was, I went to Bible college, I got into ministry, and for a decade, right? I made no money. I mean, we lived, you know, I I would say pretty poor until I went over to Kenya and saw the slums. And then I thought, no, that's poor, right? But but we had no extra. I mean, I, I, I lived paycheck to paycheck and sometimes paycheck to two paychecks, right? I mean, my bank account would be a negative, right? And that's a combination of not getting paid enough and not managing what I had well, right? Living this life. And then I would meet people who life was great. They were driving nicer cars. They had better houses. And I thought to myself, I'll never get there. I'll never get there. But what I did is I began to apply Scripture to my life, and I began to walk out the way that God said to walk things out, and I began to live generous, beyond my means sometimes, faithful to His Word, right? And, and, and I, again, I... I don't even I don't even want to take the time to break down all the little things that God did along the way but but I'm I'm telling you that there is hope inside of that that you will find fulfillment where you're at and that you you will end up in a better place. Now the the end goal for everybody is not the desire to drive a certain car or to live in a certain place, right? Like some people really care about cars, right? Right? Some people are passionate about vehicles and that is fantastic, right? You've got a dream car you've always wanted, you work hard, and maybe by the grace of God, that dream is fulfilled, right? Okay, that was never my thing. I, I'm okay with driving an older car. I wanted a house for a legacy, right? And that's the thing that I was fighting for, and I say not that your car can't be a legacy. It can be. I don't understand them all, right? But a place where my whole family would be together, right? Where my kids and my grandkids one day could come together, like years down the road, right? My, my point being that God will, God will do a work inside of you, and He'll shift what your desires are when you're faithful to Him, and He will go all the way back to that, right? That if you're a believer in a home with an unbeliever, or whether you're both believers, you can have the, 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 the faithfulness of God blessing your home every single day when you do it His way, when you do it His way. Let's stand to our feet as we close. God's encouragement here is that Jesus has already laid out the importance of marriage, right? A faithfulness. Paul's trying to bring a little bit of clarity, but most importantly, he wants them to understand that God is with you where you are. And so if you are right now in the midst of a really difficult season, and you don't like it, God's with you. And if you're in the midst of walking your best life ever, like everything you've ever hoped for is going right right now god is with you and if it's all taken away tomorrow god is with you and just remember right that 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 there are people who are imprisoned for their faith still on this planet god is with them and if you were to be imprisoned for your faith tomorrow god would be with you and if we can learn to do that in the seasons when it's acceptable we'll be able to manage it in the seasons when it's really hard and we're modeling it for others amen i want to pray with you real quick if you would bow your heads and close your eyes father we just thank you so much for your faithfulness and consistency help us to remember that in the midst of everything that we might be experiencing that we might be our emotions are, are feeling lord that, that you are right there in the midst of it all help us to to lean into your word Not into our own understanding, but into your understanding. Help us to be faithful. Help us to to, to not make excuses for why the Scripture doesn't apply to us. But instead, let us test and see. Let us put it to the test and see what happens. And Lord, I pray that as we're doing that, Lord, that that we will uh, be seen by the world around us. Right now, Father... At least in my lifetime, I feel like there's just so many eyes looking at the church, looking for us to fail, looking for us to become the epitome of everything that the enemy is trying to declare that we are. And Father, the the sense of urgency for us to be different, it's as real as it's ever been. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us, that, that those that 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 are hearing this, that are are making excuses and saying, well, I interpret it different or I look at it different or it doesn't matter, Father, that they would really put those things to the test, not just because I'm saying it, Lord, but that they would put it to the test, bring it to your word, bring it to prayer, Lord, and I pray that you would bring clarity, uh, insight, direction for them. Lord, we pray for those that are non-believers around us. We pray for them a lot. We pray that they would come to know you, that they would come to know your goodness, that they would make a change in their lives. Father, help us to really understand how important the way we live our lives, what a role that plays in what they see and what they decide. We love you, and we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness. In your mighty name, amen, amen.